Welcome to What's Your Story podcast. I'm your host, Matt Story. On this pod, I sit down with people of color leaders to understand how they've been able to use their superpowers to make an impact on our world. And I do it one story at a time. My guest on the pod today is a startup founder that's seeking to revolutionize e-commerce by turning everyday shoppers into influencers. She's also had an extensive background and experience in all things entertainment and design. So with that, please welcome Colette Shelton to the show. Hi, Matt. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. Thanks for taking the time. So before we jump into your amazing career and the journey you've had so far, I'd love it if you could share a story about your background and maybe bring us into what little Colette was like. Yeah. So I am, I'm a, a native of Southern California. I was born in Los Angeles and, and I grew up with a really strong family unit. And I, we had my grandparents who moved here to LA in the 1940s and they came from Texas to kind of leave a world filled with a lot of racial tensions and they felt that California was a place to be. And, and then we had my mother's family who immigrated here from Haiti. And everybody was here in Los Angeles. My, you know, my mom and dad met while in school and, and they always, you know, our families, my mom's family had moved here and my dad's family was all here. So family was always a big part of, of my life growing up and a big influence. And I had a grandmother who worked, you know, very hard working class grandparents who worked really hard to make sure that their four kids on my dad's side all went to college and they had not been educated. And so education was always really important. And then on my mother's side, coming from Haiti, it was, it was, you know, she became a college professor and she was a PhD. So education was always extremely important. So I think if you, the, the young me was, I think, you know, highly influenced by a very tight-knit family, large and tight-knit family, extend, an extended family. And then also definitely younger sister syndrome. I have a young, I have an older sister who I love very much, who is my best friend, but I was also, you know, the one that was always a little more mischievous, the one that was a little yeah. more that kind of expected everybody to do everything for me, you know, very much <laughs> the, the younger, the youngest child syndrome. But I think that people would probably describe me at that time as, you know, as smart, kind of talkative, you know, you know, fun loving. And, and I think that there's always been an element of a little bit of, if you want to call it ambition, mm-hmm. that even starting when I was young, whether I was stamp collecting or deciding to be, um, you know, almost, I was thinking back about it, you know, I was thinking about this, our talk and almost every single school I was in, I was either a class president or I was the class, um, or the class secretary, the class vice president. And this started, I remember in fifth grade, I remember a fifth grade teacher calling me Madam President. And I was like, wow. So it all, it has always been part of something that I've been doing is like trying to lead, trying to shape the way people are, you know, make, make a student's life better, make their experience better, and to try to have some kind of influence in that way. So maybe influence has, you know, has been part of my life for some time. Wow. So with all of that as foundation into who you were, did you have an idea of like, this is what I want to be when I grow up? Was it, was it president? Was, you know, was it, you know, executive? Like, did did you have an idea of what that eventual career might look like as a, as a little girl? 
Well, you know, as a little girl, you you kind of reflect what you you see. So I saw my mother as a college professor. My dad was a lawyer. And I remember my sister and I used to play lawyer. Mm. Uh, we'd get a briefcase and we would pretend we would go to work. And we didn't even really know what you did at work, but we would pretend to, you know, we would talk law. We'd sit at a fake desk and <laughs> pretend that we were talking law. And so naturally, oddly enough, you know, it's interesting. I probably don't know if I wanted to be a lawyer, but it was probably because my dad was a lawyer. We saw this and I, I naturally kind of led to what I was doing. But I think at that point, I would probably have said lawyer and then I changed all of a sudden. And I remember when I started writing for school newspapers, I was like, I think I really love storytelling. Mm -hmm. And I think I want to be a journalist. And I think that the power of storytelling is so, you know, it's, it's so impactful and, you know, it can really shape the way people think. And I, I remember, I think that in writing for the school newspaper, I remember always in high school and in junior high school, always thinking about the stories that weren't told or the point of view that wasn't told. So I, you know, when I was thinking about journalism, I thought how many newsrooms around the country that I felt like I would be watching local news. And, you know, even as a young child, and I would think, but wait, they're missing something or they're not talking about this perspective. Yeah. So if I could be the person that is you know, reporting on the national news or telling that story, then that's what I want to be. So I think the journalism and TV idea kind of probably came around in probably junior high school. And from then on, I remember I worked I, I had an internship at a local TV station during high school. And then that just led to, you know, a constant, you know, writing for the school newspaper, writing for the school yearbook, and that bled into college. And then the things I did, you know, in summers during the during college years as well. Wow. There's something interesting as I hear you kind of walk through that story and you, it was great to hear about your, your parents and kind of their families and what led to that. It, it sounds like they gave, definitely gave you suggestions and built that foundation of values, but it like instilled this confidence in you to know that I have a different perspective and it needs to be heard. Mm -hmm. Someone needs to hear this, which is not always the case for those of us that, you know, may potentially go into those rooms and be the only one mm -hmm. that looks like us. And so I, I, I can't help but think that that confidence that they instilled in you allowed you to have the ability to say, hey, I can do this. I can do that and, and go beyond what, you know, maybe you would have thought of on your on your own. So that it's great that they really focused in on that. Yeah, I think that by by osmosis, you know, our family dinners were often, you know, talking about world politics. You know, I remember, you know, again being the younger one, and I, I'm, I'm so thankful for the way I grew up because I always say that my inclination would be probably be far more less substantive than it was because, you know, our dinner table conversations were about politics. We would listen to my mom and dad talk about what was going on in the world. And then we would be asked to weigh in. I would always weigh in begrudgingly. My sister was you know, like, like always, you know, ready to, to participate. And, and I, and I'm so thankful though, when I look back, I think, you know, it's interesting. Um, but for my parents and, but for my family, I would not be the person I am. I mean, like, and I guess that anybody would say that, but I also am so thankful because people often say, you know, I did this myself, I did this, but I didn't. Yeah. I, I literally, it was, it was the vision of my grandparents who grew up in rural Texas. It was the vision of my, my mom's family who came here from Haiti. And it was the vision and, and the kind of traditions that were carried on that came down to me and kind of led us to, you know, where our parents kind of just said, you can do anything. I think my dad was a, a very significant figure. So my mom grew up in Haiti and her 
father was the undersecretary of state during a regime called the Vincent regime. And so she came from a, a point of view of where you can do anything because um, they were a privileged family. They'd you know, gone to, you know, wonderful schools, you know, and then, you know, at the time of there was some political, you know, with the Duvalier regime in Haiti, they had to leave because they were with the previous regime. And so her perspective was always like, you can do anything. And so she was getting her PhD. And that's what we, we grew up with on UCLA's campus, watching my mom get her PhD, my dad studying, and then my dad went to Loyola Law School. So they never told us that we couldn't do anything. And then everything, and it's interesting because we grew up in a predominantly white neighborhood, mm -hmm. but I never, I just felt like I, like why, I, I felt like everything belonged to me, that it should yeah. be me. And I, and I do look back and I think of all the barriers and the things that had happened. And, and, you know, and I can, I actually know that there was something in me that just said, keep going. Like, it doesn't yeah. matter. And you, you deserve this. And I think it's something to, to, it's a testament to my parents who would sit at night and listen to whatever our stories were. They would, they would encourage us, you know, to not listen to the noise and to not be swayed by the noise and to, to really realize our dream. So I think that the, the idea of, you know, certain values of just working hard, being honest and being kind were something that was strung through all families. Like there's nobody on any side of any of my family that doesn't have that value structure. And so, so I think when, so my parents, their belief was if you do those things, work hard, you're kind to people and you're honest, you can do anything. And so those were the, the limitations would be those. And, and you would put those limitations on yourself by, by being mean, by being dishonest, by not mm -hmm. working hard. So it's like, so we just believed that that was the case, that we could do anything. And that's what we were told. And, and, you know, as, as I said, the, you know, I think that, that, you know, I look at the, the idea of honesty and the, the, that value structure in my life. And, you know, I remember my grandmother, her home was always filled with everybody from this, you know, all the kids from the street. And she lived in a neighborhood, which is now been very gentrified, but at the time was predominantly black. And she, um, and everybody loved her. And she said, you know, I can't let people not feel loved or, or I can't, or, if, you know, this kid wants to come by and he's not doing really well, I'm going to feed him and I'm going to make sure. And, you know, so this idea of kindness has always run through our family. And I think that that, if, with that value structure, if you do those three things, you'll do well, you know, so we didn't think that there were barriers because we were doing the three things. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's powerful to think about it in terms of things that are in your control. Because I think we can all fall get victim and and guilty of complaining or worrying about things that we can't control. Mm -hmm. But I, I love simplifying it down to those very simple things that you can do consistently. Mm -hmm. And as you said, it's like, you know, if you do that every day, then that's who you are. So mm -hmm. that that's great. And and then the other thing, you didn't say this, but what it was screaming to me is excellence and black excellence and and being exposed to it in a way that it's not a surprise like that. That's just how we operate. And mm -hmm. so I think that also, you know, pours into your confidence and in, in, in who you are to know that anything is possible, which, which is phenomenal. So I do have to ask you, you know, you grew up in SoCal, but you went East for school. So what led to that decision, both for your undergrad and then eventually for law school? 
And, you know, what did you take away from that shift, which I'm assuming was a pretty significant shift in, in culture and, and environment and what have you? Yeah. So I, so my parents both um, went to UCLA for undergraduate and they got married, I think when they were 22 years old and, or 21 or, and so they had, they kind of grown up on UCLA's campus. So for them, it was very important for my sister and myself to have like kind of the classic East Coast college mm-hmm. experience. So my sister is 10 months older than me. She'd gone to Brown University before me and me being the young the younger one was like, I'm not going to the East Coast. I'm going to stay and go to UCLA and go to the parties and finally yeah. do some fun. Because I was always very, you know, I never in, in high school, I didn't drink. And, you know, I was the, the kind of goody two-shoes, you know, that never yeah. did anything errant except studied. I had a gr- large group of friends, but I, I did not. I was always a good one. So I thought maybe this will be my time at UCLA to have that fun that I've seen all the college students have. And my parents had a very different idea. And I only applied, I think, to two schools. My French teacher went to Wellesley and I thought, oh, well, you know, I was a very good student. I was like, well, I might as well apply to Mrs. Koppel's alma mater <laughs> and I'll apply to UCLA because that's where I'm going. And mm-hmm. maybe I applied to Harvard or something like that. And I maybe was waitlisted or didn't get into Harvard. And I got into UCLA and Wellesley and I wrote back to UCLA. And I was like, I'm so excited. I'm going to be a Bruin. And my parents wrote to Wellesley and said, she just needs a little more time to, to decide. <laughs> and then ultimately my, you know, I think about it so funny. I, I was, you know, very short-sighted because at the time I remember just, you know, always like at that last year, my mom and dad were like, oh, you, you know, I felt like I was on restriction a lot. And, and finally I called my sister. I said, what is going on? And she said, they want you to go to Wellesley. And I think just short term, I was like, I don't even really know what Wellesley is. I just applied because Mrs. Koppel, I'll just go. And so I wow. ended up at Wellesley, which was actually a real, it was a, a real culture shock, I must say. Mm-hmm. Going to the East Coast in LA, living in Claremont, which is a small college town outside of Los Angeles, even though, you know, there were, you know, there was racism, you know, my, my a friend of mine growing up, her dad was a racist and I wasn't allowed mm. to go into his house. And I didn't mm. remember that yeah. until, I didn't remember that until the George Floyd. Wow. So, and I was on a phone call with another senior executive who he was like, I had the same epiphany about I remembered, and I, and I never told my parents. Mm-hmm. I remember in fifth grade, I used to have to go stand um, outside of her house and stand on the curb, knock on the door and stand on the curb and wait for her because her dad was a racist. Wow. And wow. and then my mom, I told my mom recently, why wouldn't you ever tell me? Because I yeah. thought to myself, I must have not told my parents. I remember us all being at a graduation party together. And there's no way my parents, who were very prideful, who were very, very Afrocentric, Black-centric, yeah. there yeah. is no way they would have been at that party if they knew. And I, apparently I just, I, I guess racism was so seeped into what we were doing that I didn't even, I guess as a young child, I didn't know that that was wrong or right. Or I mean, I knew, I must have known it was wrong. But it was you were protecting the friendship. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And so and so when I, you know, so but that being said, in Claremont, there was, you know, I, I, I people call me names and, you know, racial names. But there was something about the community, too, that was also because it was a college community that was a little more inclusive. So I never the culture shock for me and going to the East Coast was this this thing of, you know, dividing people. 
Mm. So I remember getting to college. I remember he'd say, somebody said, she's a Jap. And I called my mom. I said, they're calling a Japanese person a Jap. And so I, I wanted to stand in. But then everybody kind of looked at me. I said something. She said, they were saying Jewish American princess. And you should still stand up and say something. Mm. So because my, my parents were also very, very uh, principled. Yeah. So they always taught us to stand up and fight yeah. for people and yep. say something when something is wrong. So it was like things like that. And I was like, oh, but I thought I've heard the non-Jewish people, like what does Jewish American princess mean? Like I've heard all people talking about the, you know, like I, I was like, this is a stereotype. So, yeah. so, so for me, it was very, the first year was shocking, hmm. <laughs> frankly. And I yeah. think the East Coast, it was Boston. It was, I felt the most amount. So I'm, the reason why I told you the stories of before, the most amount of racism I felt was in, Boston, um, in Boston. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and, and so it was a huge culture shock. I, I adjusted and, um, you know, from Wellesley, you know, I wrote for the paper again, I was in student government again, yeah. <laughs> class yeah. vice president. And, but I, and also sat on the board at Wellesley, I became a student board member to, to kind of fight for at that point, they were talking about, and this is aging myself, but divestment. <laughs> in oh, wow. South Africa. And so I sat on the board so I could vote in favor of us divesting our funds from South Africa. Yep. And, and so, you know, so it was, Wellesley was a huge shock and, and also it was an all women's college and it's the complete antithesis of, <laughs> of the yeah. UCLA that I wanted yeah. to go to, but it was, it still did open my mind. It was a new experience. You know, it was something new. The people I met were, you know, it was a totally different world. I think there was an amount of exposure that I got there that I wouldn't have. So I understand why my parents really thought it was important for us to yeah. have that experience. It was nice. My sister was down the road at Brown, so we would see each other quite often. And, but it was, it was a huge culture shock and yeah. it was a huge change. And it's like, you know, and I, and even though I might feel like I, you know, there is a side of me that does have a little bit of shyness. So a lot of it was like all of these new experiences. And it was really, you know, I thought my, by my junior year that I was going to be transferring out, I ended up staying, but it was, it was a huge culture shock. Yeah. Well, it, again, it ties back to that foundation your, your, your parents poured into and your community poured into you that. You, you, you had the shock, but you were able to sustain and you still found your lane to contribute because, you know, many people could have been hit with those type of incidents or those, those uh, moments and times and kind of pulled in and said, okay, I'm not going to, I'm just going to get it, get my work done and get out of here. But you still found a way to make impact, which again, speaks to that character that your, your, your parents and, and family were, were creating and pouring into. And then also your parents having that foresight to know that, you know, pushing you a little bit out of the nest to go to where you didn't think you wanted to go was going to be going to be beneficial. So you mentioned playing law as a as a child. You did go to law school. So how did how did that that play into the the plan or the suggested recommendations? So it's interesting. All of this is going to be sound very uninspirational to anybody who's following. <laughs> this was, you know, I after college, I I knew during, you know, when I said that whole television thing was running through, yeah. I knew that I was going to. I wanted to do something in TV. So right after college, I got a huge fellowship with the ABC affiliate in Boston, where I became like the first Hearst Broadcast News Fellow, and so I was, you know, learning about local news, and then. After that, I remember I remember sending something like 
100 letters out and I got a job. So I remember this. So I was sending out, I was like, I want to work in national news because I think it's really important for my perspective to be see, heard on the national level. Somebody's black a woman, like to be there and telling stories and telling a different perspective. And I remember sending letters out to all of the ABC, NBC, CBS. And I got a call like this is like a month or two, three months later. And I sent tons of letters, you know, just a ton to different people. And I got a call from a woman. I remember her name. Her name was Amy Antellis. And she's like, I'd like you to come to New York and I, we'd like to interview you at ABC. And I said, okay. So I got there and she was in her office and she had a stack of letters this high. And I said, and this is again, old, old days. And she went through, she said, I see you wrote to John Smith, the writer. I see you wrote to the executive producer. I see you wrote to whoever. I see you wrote to like, and literally yeah. and everyone was like a little different. It was like, oh yeah, I'd love to be a writer. Like I just knew yeah. I wanted to be in the space. And, and so somehow that, 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 um, that, you know, the, the deluge of letters, I guess, yeah. must have alerted somebody. And, and, and so ultimately I interviewed with Amy and I got this job at ABC news where I was, you know, a researcher for nightline, you know, it was wow. kind of a, it was another kind of fellowship where I kind of saw a bunch of, bunch of different departments, but primarily I was at nightline working for Ted Koppel and, and, and really thrown into the fire of big national news. So I did that for a couple of years. And then during that time, I always knew, so you asked about law school, you know, I had, I had decided, and this is where I'm saying this story is uninspirational because I can't really say it was me. I decided that I, you know, why do I need to go to graduate school? And my, yep. it was like, I'd almost said that I was going to, I don't even know what I could have said. My parents, it was like, you're not going to graduate school and, you know, calls my sister, hi, mom and dad are worried about you. And like, I'm yeah. working in New York. Yeah. Um, I like, you know, I'm making an income at a top network, but again, yeah. to the, the, you know, anybody who's listening who has Caribbean parents or has, <laughs> you know, it's doctor, lawyer, banker at that time. Now, yeah. you know, yeah. that they, that my mom knew and that was the legitimate career. Otherwise everything else was like, what, what was I doing? You're playing you know, around. So, yeah, yeah, so, yeah. So ultimately, you know, I did think too, that it would be very wise for me. And especially I did love the idea of advocacy and the law. And I thought, wouldn't it be great to, to go to law school or to get a public policy degree? And I decided that the law degree would probably be a little bit more marketable and something that I could actually fall back on at any point in my career later than the public policy. So I ended up going to law school and it was the best experience I've ever, you know, it's the best educational experience I ever had. Wow. So what's interesting about that is your, your parents were advocates for you, but they were advocating, advocating to you for you, <laughs> which, which is, which is really fascinating to hear. And then also it sounds like there was a lot of serendipity that played out in terms of, again, that hard work, that being kind, mm -hmm. that you had opportunities and you, you built on that. So we, we've made our way into your professional journey. I'd love to understand how you then take that marketable uh, law degree and actually get into marketing. Because again, that's, that's, not, a, that's not a straight route. So, so what, what did you do to be inspired to go that way? The route is actually far more, far more um, curvy than is featured on my LinkedIn. So, um, <laughs> so while at law school, I, you know, because I'd worked in TV news and I thought that I was going to be a TV news reporter too, somehow in all of this. So during law school, 
on the weekends when everybody else was doing whatever, I found a job um, at a local news station to get experience. And it was in Hagerstown, Maryland. And so I would have to drive on Fridays and Saturdays, because I was a weekend reporter on Saturdays and Sundays, I think. I would drive two hours to Hagerstown. And it was such a small, it was like the 200, let's say there's 300 news markets. It was 298. And so, so I would get there, they would say, go out, take this camera. And I would have to take a camera and I would be covering, you know, the cat in the tree, the, the, <laughs> the local motorcycle rally, yeah. right? A little yeah. frightening, the civil war reenactments. Oh, wow. Right. And, and I, I would, I did that for, I think that was the uh, pretty much all of my third year in law school. So TV, I'd never given up TV in the summers. One summer I did a summer associateship at a law firm at, at which I got an offer afterwards. But, but prior to that, I was doing, you know, still staying in touch with TV. I had been at ABC News and I'd worked um, on local news. I mean, national news from the LA Bureau. So the ABC News would often call me to do freelance work and just pick up and do interviews or go things. So I was still doing news on the side. So TV was always part of what I was doing. Now, where the shift came was right after law school, I got offered a, I got a, I, I went, I did spend one summer at a law firm in New York and they offered me a job because I did a pretty good job. And, and, and after law school, I took the bar, passed it. And the goal is, you know, the penultimate goal is you go work at a corporate law firm. And this was in New York city. I, on the side, started sending out resume tapes <laughs> to news stations all across the country. So I remember these stacks of resume tapes and letters and packages going out. Wow. And I remember this, this is funny. The, I was in DC and I was just finished with the bar. And I remember having a credit card in my dad's. I remember being like, I'm going to, I need to find a job and I'm, and I'm, I don't want to go to the law firm yet. I want to try this news thing. So mm -hmm. I, so I fanned out and finally there was one person in Las Vegas. I'd never been to Las Vegas who said we could use a weekend reporter. And if you could get out here, maybe I would consider you. And I was like, I've never been to Las Vegas. And so I remember putting on my dad's credit card, a $200 flight to Las Vegas. I got to Las <laughs> Vegas, spent the day there. The guy wouldn't answer the phone. I called all day long. At the end of the day, finally, my flight was going to leave at seven because I wasn't going to stay in Las Vegas. Yeah. I'd never been there. I was, yeah. you know, and, and at the end of the day, the man, the news director at five o'clock in the afternoon, I think my flight was like at 730. He finally saw me. And, and and we finally took the meeting and yeah. he said, I'm going to offer you a position. At the time, it was a lot. What the law firm was offering is a six-figure salary. He said, I'm going to offer you a position. It's $18,000 a year. Or what is it, 16000 Wow. And I said, <laughs> yes. <laughs> wow. Wow. And I flew back. I remember my dad saying, I saw $200 on the credit card. I was like, I, you know, I don't know, you know, Something. getting a younger child, <laughs> um, you know, and, and the day that again, you know, again, I say all this because my parents have been some of my biggest champions, but it's just yeah. a, the comedy of some of the moments. Like I remember sit, telling them that I was going to be a reporter and yeah. my dad was like, um, He's like, oh, well, that's kind of interesting, dear. And my my mother, it was as if, again, I, you know, I had decided to take some illicit, you know, turn yeah. on yeah. life. Yeah. And and so, needless to say, that was so. I so I went and became a TV news reporter, told more stories, and and really enjoyed it and loved the idea of storytelling and kind of telling things from a different perspective, even on the local level. And with the plan of ultimately going back and ending up in national news, mm -hmm. after um. 
it was interesting, you know, that was probably the first time in jobs where I really started to feel, you know, like real racism in the sense that, you know, you know, applying for reporter jobs, mm-hmm. they, you know, I'd see my peers. I, I, I immediately somehow got an agent, which was from the William Morris agency to represent me. And he would send my, my resume tape to news directors and somehow it just never bubbled to the top. And yeah. so, so I had to decide, would I go to a smaller market than Las Vegas, which, you know, and, and which already Las Vegas to me was, you know, I spent one year there. And so I just decided to come back to LA and to think about TV in a different way and whether it be entertainment or producing or doing um, something still involved with television and still involved with storytelling and, but maybe in whatever you could do in Los Angeles. So that, that led me to more of the entertainment side and after entertainment, you know, while I was, I became a producer and then I became a, a creative executive. And that's a person who people are pitching shows to and you're making decisions. And I really love that because I really felt like some of the storytelling on, you know, entertainment television was very biased or we weren't representing. Mm-hmm. You know, we have, I remember hiring as one of the hosts for one of our shows. We, I did a lot of nonfiction and unscripted. We hired diverse people because I would put them in front of my bosses and I would say, what about these producers? What about this? You know, I was junior, but I was like the one who was saying, can we, instead of looking at the same five producers, everybody says is so great and so great. You will not look outside. Can we try to maybe look at somebody else? And so, you know, I think I had minor impact in that, but I, but that was kind of my goal is like, how can I kind of change and get a different perspective and also succeed and show a different face. It could be an executive who is building a network. And it was at that point, I actually decided that's when I was like, I want to be president of a TV network Hmm. or president of a, of a, of a larger scale company that's, you know, shaping the way people, you know, the, the stories and the things that people hear. Yeah. So I'm going to, so I'll, I'll give it away. My superpower is connecting dots. And I I think what's interesting is that we talked about your parents really instilling in you this idea of knowing what you control. And while it may not be up and to the right, you definitely focused in on what did you want to do and how could you control it? And it sounds like in the TV world, you hit a wall of something that was out of your control. And so you took what you were really interested in about TV and reoriented it in, into what can I actually control to make an impact? And I think that's just like, it's phenomenal to hear you kind of go through it because again, it may not sound like that was the plan, but that was the tools that you were given and you were using those tools to make make a, a very meaningful impact because you looked at the world through a different perspective that those groups, those entities, those networks needed. And, and I, I just think that that's really interesting to kind of hear it back now, which you probably at the time didn't think about it that way, but it's definitely something that stood out to me as you were walking through that. You know, my sister and I are writing a book uh, right now, and it's probably premature to talk about it because we're still writing it. And, and <laughs> but, but we're, you know, it's really going to be geared towards younger executives who are black and who are, or, you know, really black and, and, you know, and hopefully it helps other people along the way. And just the, the different kinds of journeys that an executive or somebody who's made it to a senior level can have. So 
there's the people like my sister, who she's a prominent, she's one of the top privacy attorneys in the country. She's part of 0.5% or 0.8% of black women, female partners at corporate law firms. And she, her journey has been sticking it out and just working so hard and having to be entrepreneurial, you know, when other people are getting clients just handed to them, like her having yeah. to create her own space and her own space is now privacy and she's just blossoming. And, and for me, it was interesting when you just talked about this hitting the wall, we talked about this and, you know, and one of the chapters in the book is like, you know, I, I think that every time you're going to hear about the shift in my career, I did, I did this move. It kind of went like this. So she did this path. And she, it's hugely successful. Mine was always like, it was moving out of, out of harm's way, actually, yeah. really a little bit. Yeah. And I look back and I think, gosh, if I, if I hadn't taken this path, I wouldn't be where I am today, which is exactly where I'm supposed to be. So it's yeah. kind of interesting, but it is when I look back, I realize that all the shifts that I made were when I hit a wall, when, when somebody said, I, you can't do that or, or like, or I was finding that that wall was there. Like, and I yeah. didn't even know. And I was just like, oh, well then I'm leaning into this or I'm going to lean yeah. into that. And so I guess I would say to people is that, you know, especially people who are, you know, coming up in, in, you know, in the world of corporate America or entertainment and, and they do hit those walls. It's like maybe viewing, you know, if you don't get exactly what you had imagined, but viewing it as an opportunity. Now, I, I guess when I look back, I, it makes me mad to think that the, and I can, I, I can actually outline the yeah. kind of, you know, blatantly racist things that happened to me that yeah. I was like, I'm not going back to there. I'm doing that. And so I, you know, I could outline it. I won't, you know, I don't, but, but blatantly racist things. So, you know, I can paint this picture of just, I, I uh, worked really hard. I did work really hard. I was mm -hmm. the one that was pulling overnighters and, and overperforming. I, I have a, a, you know, in all of the positions I was in and, and still there were a lot of barriers. And so there, so it's, you know, it's, there are two ways that people deal with it. Like, it's like my sister just driving for it no matter what. And then there are, and it's, it's very taxing, but it's, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. And then there's also the people that shift, they keep on shifting, shifting, and then it ends up kind of, you know, I said I was going to run a company. I am yeah. running a company. It's not yeah. what I thought it was going to be. Yeah. Like hers is, she thought she was going to do this and yeah. she is, you know, and, it, and, and mine is, I thought I was going to do it. It's not the company that I thought it, but it's exactly what I, where I thought I would be. So I, I guess, you know, it's, it's don't shift your journey because there is a wall. I wouldn't say that, but I would say if you do happen to shift your journey, try to look at the opportunities ahead. So yeah. I guess, cause I never viewed, I didn't realize this was happening until yeah. after when it, it's in retrospect, you see, yeah. I never, wasn't sitting there being like, Oh my God. And I'm, so, exactly. so if you do find your journey shifting, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah. And you want to be in spaces where people are embracing you and yep. celebrating you. And it doesn't mean that you can't be in the places where they're not, but you want to be the way you really thrive. And so if it means I know that I'm going to build that space and I'm going to go through, which, you know, and going through is, is a rough journey, but it's a valuable journey and it's a valiant journey. You know, this is a total tangent, um, but 
during the the George Floyd and and all that, you know, I was so frustrated with hearing that there were no black executives that I was working with some interns on a project for Chirpiest and we are going to comb manually through LinkedIn and we're going to look up every single black executive that we can find. And if we don't think they're black, we're going to look in their background. We're going to find out where they went to school. And so we put together, I, you know, I did 900 of them or a thousand of them, 11,500 black executives. And it was very interesting to see the pattern. There were those like my sister that went through. And I thought to myself, it was a very cathartic moment for me because I saw them and I thought, gosh, I was just at the point in corporate America where I could really make a difference for those coming up. And then I went to do my own thing and build my own thing. Should I have stayed? Should I have stayed to make a difference? And so you could see their face. You could see the tenacity in those people's faces. And then there were the people that they were leading their own company, little company, or they were doing something. And if you look one job back, they were vice president at some accounting house. They were, and so they, so there was a very, it was an absolute pattern you know, so my sister and yeah. I kind of reflect, it was a 100% pattern. It was yeah. like, there, there was, it was like half and half. So of the 11,500 executives we saw, it was like half were like, kind of had, 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 had been pushed and shifted and then, and then actually found new things. And then there was those that barreled through. So there are two paths and one does, one is not better than the other, but yeah. But no, if you end up on a path where the thing that you thought it looks a little different, it can actually end up being a, a blessing. Yeah, a hundred percent. And you, you know, I I think that for me, what is great about these conversations is that we're not a monolith. And just in you walking through, even in your own household, having two very different perspectives, two very different experiences, because I, a lot of times when you when you think about the black community, it can sometimes be described as one experience. And yeah. in the many conversations I've had with some great folks, it's, there's many different experiences that impact us in different ways and cause us to use our skill sets in different ways and gain experience in different ways. So I, I think that's another, another kind of uh, check on the board that whatever your path is, is the right path for you. Yeah. And it's up to you to live it out yeah. to the fullest. But I, I do want to talk about where you are now with Chirpiest. And again, you set out to revolutionize kind of this booming industry we see in e-commerce. Like the pa- it was already booming, then the pandemic happened, and then everyone's shopping online. And so I'm curious for you, where did the idea come from? And, and how do you see yourself bringing your unique skill set to this company? Yeah. So, so while, while I was working as a marketing and partnerships and marketing executive, I'd shifted kind of from the creative side to the marketing and partnership side. And I guess I didn't know this, but in retrospect, I guess I needed a creative outlet because I'd always been slightly creative with the writing and and I was loving what I was doing and doing these large scale partnerships with fortune 50 companies, you know, in our shows like Empire and, and, you know, American Idol and creating these big scale deals and partnerships. And it was really very rewarding. And, but I guess there was something about writing and the creativity. So I, you know, one day I, and there was always, I always was starting things in college. I started a, one of a side newspaper, like a comedy newspaper. So we were always starting things. And I, I was, you know, one day I was talking to a friend and I said, um, I, you know, I have an idea of something we should do together. And she said, why don't you start a blog? And I was like, I don't even know what a blog is. And this is back in 2008. And then she kind of hung up the phone. She's like, I've got a meeting, got to go. Boom. So I Googled it and it was a blog is like writing story. And I was like, oh, I could do this. And, and at that time I was, I was redoing, remodeling some 
areas in this little cottage in the Hollywood Hills that I owned. And I was finding, I was getting a lot of satisfaction out of that. So I started writing this blog called Coco Cozy, which became a Forbes magazine ranked blog. It, you know, it led to, to, you know, big partnerships, like product partnerships with Tommy Hilfiger and other brands. And, and I ended up in my own collection of textiles and rugs and all this, and all this while working at, at my job. And I used to, we had offices for Coco Cozy and I would drive at seven o'clock in the morning, drive down the hill, go to my offices, write checks. There's two or three people working there, then go to, to my job all day long wow. at the end of the day, come back, whatever. And so, but during that I was an influencer and I did notice, you know, uh, again, I'll try to make this quick, but I did notice that, first of all, two things. One is many of my peers who all started blogs in 2008, they were able to monetize a lot sooner than I was. And I, oh, that's interesting. Nobody's asking me to do that, but whatever, you know, I'm just, you know, happy-go-lucky going yeah, on. Yeah. And, and, but I did notice that I was like, wait, if you look across the board, the people that are getting the brand partnerships are not people are diverse. Mm -hmm. And then I was also noticing this phenomenon at work, which involved women, which was, you know, while I was at my job, there were a lot of, a lot of times where women were overlooked, a lot of younger women. And there mm -hmm. were, you know, a, a guy would be brought in with no experience and be given a vice president position while a, a person who had a graduate degree was sitting in a cube as a coordinator. And, and, you know, I often was championing, you know, to no avail, championing, mm -hmm their growth, their promotion. You know, I remember there's one story where one of my bosses, I knew a guy in another area, I guess he called me and he said, I, I'm looking to promote somebody. I need a position. I need to fill a manager position. I thought the person who's sitting right outside of my office, who was intern, the coordinator, she's ready. So I said, you should go meet with this guy. Turns out the week before he called my boss and asked the same question. My boss said, I don't know anybody. Wow. So I was always the one that was championing and trying to whatever. And, but what I did notice, these, a lot of these women, young women, they were oftentimes kind of tamped down at work. And I felt like the time that I saw them light up and I felt they felt like they had value is when they were exchanging ideas, standing out in front of my office. Oh, did you know you should go here? I just went here with my boyfriend. You could go get this for your mom or do this. Mm -hmm. And I thought, do they know that this exchange has value? bloggers are getting like they're exchanging people are converting and so they're chirping their ideas and I was like and so the idea was you know there's always that chirpiest person chirpy person we spelled it with a y we spelled it you know incorrectly because we liked the way it looked there's yeah. always that chirpy person who is in a group who is singing the praises of other who's others who's sharing ideas who's sharing items and product and shouldn't that person know that they have value because the only time the, that's the only time I saw these young ladies feel like they had value when they were talking to each other and sharing ideas. And I thought if I can combine what I've done as a blogger and what I know is possible as a blogger with the regular everyday consumer and give them some of the tools and give them some of the, you know, and easy, easier to use and new and innovative tools that, that I have, have had some exposure to, what would that look like as a business model? And so hence, you know, Chirpies was born. I started on Coco Cozy. We just started with a section that had every month I would kind of rotate a hundred people. I actually didn't know what I was going to do with it. I was just like, I know there's all these people that are micro creating or they're not even creators. They're just people with a great eye. I just want to celebrate them, you know, and they're, they're putting their point of view out on Instagram. They have 400 followers. And for some reason they're posting every day, but it's because they're posting every day. It's because 
they feel like they found some control over having a voice. Yeah. And even if they have 200 followers or 100. And so I wanted to celebrate them. And so hence Tripius was born. And so then I went on the journey of I, I, you know, quit my job and, and then I went on the journey of building and it's been an amazing, one of the most uh, gratifying experiences of my life. That's great. And what I love about it and when you were sharing in our, our pre-conversation is you're providing equitable access to a group of people that are being left out. Yeah. And as this industry booms and as brands, you know, make a lot of money off of it, there are people that are the word of mouth that are building these brands up that don't participate in those in that boom. And your no. platform is doing that and, and doing it in an equitable way. Because I think a lot of times when you think about influencers, it's the biggest ones and it's the ones that have built the biggest, you know, following, if you will. And the fact and that by you're nature, opening up. that actually ends up excluding a lot of people. Exactly. 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 So. I know we, we, we're we running low on time, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do some some quick hitters for okay. you. Get to know you a little bit better. What would you say is your superpower? Endurance. That is that is, that is is obvious based on the, the journey you've listed out and also the journey you've kicked off, joining, going into being a founder. Okay. What would you say, if you have had, has been a mama we made it? It'd be something that was associated with either launching chirpiest or coco cozy so those things those two things that i built from mm -hmm. the ground up and i think you know from so there have been some big highs with coco cozy especially on this on the the journey and you know between license deals but i think that and i think that it's it's the the moment that i think that chirpiest launched was a big deal and i remember showing my mother the back end and being like yeah. We did it. And this is something that is, first of all, it's useful. Yeah. It is, it's, it's scalable. And it is something that, you know, it's like a puzzle that, that I solved. And I, and I feel like it was like, it was my achievement. And so yeah. I really feel like, you know, I've, I've worked very hard. I probably sacrificed a lot of things in personal life and other things through work. And, and this was a moment where I felt like it was like, oh, that hard work has paid off. Like all of the things I've learned, all of the endurance and all that. So all of the things, you know, you, you talked about superpowers and I, I told you that my sister and I, there, we have a chapter about superpowers in our book because all the things that you do along the way, a lot of them are hard and a lot of them mm -hmm. are, some of them can even be hurtful. Yeah. But if you can take that and take whatever hurt and, and or whatever, or the or hardship or, and turn it into one of your superpowers. Because if you've had those experiences that nobody else has had, then that you have a point of view that is so unique that you can bring to the table. So I think that, you know, launching Chirpiest or, you know, or building Chirpiest, because we're still mm -hmm. in the process of launching and, and, and really, you know, bringing it to market, full market has been the most gratifying, at least professional, the most gratifying professional achievement that I've ever That's had. That's great. That's great. So we're going to have a little bit more fun with these questions. When they turned your life story into a movie, who would you want to play you on the big screen? Oh, this is interesting. You know, it's so funny. <laughs> um, who would I want to play me? Gosh, Lee, I'm trying to think of who I think, who I really admire. And I think that has the kind of like guts and who's made, or who's made me cry. Who's made me think, or, or, or yeah. can I have somebody who would write, write, write sure. me instead? Sure. So I, would, I would have Shonda Rhimes write. Can we make me a TV yeah. show, TV series? There you go. There you go. More <laughs> longevity. Related, what song would play in the trailer? It's going to sound super cheesy, but I would say girl, this girl's on fire. Like I would, mm, that, that would yeah. play. 
Yeah, that's a but good one. Kind of, you know, that's a good one. So <laughs> you're writing a book, you are building a company, but if you could sit with three people and learn from their lived experience and be able to take something out of what they've been able to accomplish and what they've learned, who would be your three people? They could be with us or they could have passed. Yeah. So so my dad passed away when, we, when I was about 30. My mom and dad were happily married for, or 32 maybe I was, for however many, 30 three or 34 years. And, and so I would, I would want to sit down with my dad because, you know, you know, I was just so busy being this, the sneaky younger person. I would want to sit down and hear his point of view and understand, you know, like really understand what gave him the strength to want to build a family like he did. The, the second person and, you know, my mother, I'm we're all super close. So I just, feel like she'd just be sitting in the background, you know, listening yeah. to the conversation. And then I would take, and then I would also, I probably would want, again, it'd probably be my family. It'd be my grandmother. Again, you know, I spent a lot of time talking to my grandmother over the years and always listening to her storytelling, that whole tradition of, of, you know, like oral tradition. And I just want to talk to her more and just hear more about, because she had tenacity and strength in a different way. Like she was cooking and baking and, 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 inviting people in, but there was a certain fortitude of what she was doing. And I would like to hear more about what, what made that. And then present day, I think I would choose, oh, this is going to sound totally weird. I would choose Nancy Pelosi. I think she's totally like, she's like, like, like there's something about her that is extremely fierce. And, yeah. and I would like to sit down with her for a minute and just kind of pick her brain and see yeah. how she's thinking. That's a good one. That was a wild card. I didn't see that one coming. Yeah, the other, no, it's, it's a weird the other two, I was like, yeah, that makes sense. That one, yeah. I was like, oh, okay, okay. That lets me know a little bit of how you're, you're wired. Is there anything I didn't ask that you want to share or anything you want to add? I think you were saying that you're hoping with this podcast to kind of help people that are coming along, you know, that are maybe, you know, growing their careers. And I think I just want to say, you know, hang in there to them. And, and know that, especially if it's a person of color, that you are actually trailblazing. Hmm. When you go into these environments and you are one of a few or one, you're a trailblazer. So if you thought of yourself so and all the things that are going to come at you, whether they're bad or good, and a lot of them are going to be questionable. And if you thought of those things like, I am a trailblazer. I'm yeah. Sojourner. I'm, I'm, you know, Harriet. I'm like, yeah. I'm, I'm trailblazing and you, they are. And so, so every day when you get kind of pushed down or you get lifted up, it's like lifting your shoulders back and knowing that you're doing something, you're doing something differently and yeah. you are blazing a trail and you are actually creating a space for people behind you. And it doesn't mean that every single day you have to be worried about the people behind you just by nature of what you're doing. You're trailblazing. Yeah, I think on two folds, that's powerful because one, it gives you the understanding to know that there's going to be hard times and, and any trailblazer is going to face hard obstacles, hurdles, whatever you want to call it, walls, as we talked about earlier. But the second thing, it ties into something, something someone shared with me early when I started doing the podcast and they, and they described it as we are the future ancestors. And if you operate in that space, to your point, it lifts you up to know that what you're doing, people will be talking about, hopefully. Mm -hmm. And it gives you that energy to keep going. So I think I think yeah. that's great advice. Yeah, exactly. Before I let you go, 
If people want to follow your story, they want to connect with you directly, where should I? They can follow me at Coco Cozy, where we share a lot of, of Instagram, beautiful images of homes and a little bit of my personal life. And you can follow us at Chirpiest Official on Instagram. And then anybody who's listening, whether you're, you know, somebody who's coming up in the business or somebody who's also just a business person um, on LinkedIn. I'm always on there and I'm happy to communicate and chat and always happy to have a conversation and be helpful if I can. That's great. That's great. And and you described yourself early on as a storyteller. I would say you delivered that in spades. You had so many great stories to share and to learn from. And I just thank you for, for sharing with us. Thank you so much for having me. This is a real pleasure and an honor. That was a fun conversation with Colette, and she just did a really good job of sharing those small stories and those moments and not only what she was experiencing, but how she felt in a lot of them. And I, I think that's what's really important about storytelling is you really have to bring someone into understanding what it was like to be in that position and, and leveraging the ability to, to, to feel that is just something that not, not everybody can do. So I appreciate her for sharing that gift with us. But the three things that I'll, I'll take away from our conversation are, are one is she really didn't ever let barriers outside of herself stop her. And, you know, she talked a lot about those values of, you know, being nice to people, being honest and, and working hard that were instilled in her with her family. But what I, what I loved about those is that you actually control that. And when you focus on the things you can control, it does allow you to go on to do the things that ultimately you want to do. And I think we can sometimes, unfortunately, get caught up in the things that are out of our control or sometimes talk about those things that may be preventing us. And, and if we give those our energy and our time, it prevents us from coming up with creative solutions or pivoting and, and shifting how we, we go about reaching the goals and objectives we're, we're striving to reach. The second thing that that's related is that she always bet on herself. I mean, she talked about sending out hundreds of letters. She talked about sending out hundreds of resume tapes and, and ultimately breaking through and getting opportunities to show what she was capable of just by knowing that, yes, she could have taken a probably more traditional and, a, and a probably a, an easier route to some degrees in many instances, but she knew what she wanted to do. She knew what she wanted to make an impact whether it be in TV or as she's now gone on to be a, be a founder. And, and I think that that's just something that we sometimes don't give ourselves the credit to, to bet on ourselves, And so that's definitely one of the things I'll take away. And then lastly, where she ended the conversation of just really letting you know that no matter where you are, just to hang in there. And, and especially if you're doing something that no one has done before, whether they, you know, whether you're in a, a corporate, you're an entrepreneur or other or sort of everywhere in between capacity, just recognizing that you are blazing a trail that when you're, when you're finished, it's going to be easier for someone to come after you, which is, which is great to know that, but also to give yourself the grace to just know it's not easy and, and, and to hang in there. And so, you know, those three things are all connected, I believe. And, you know, focusing in on what you can't, what you can control betting on yourself and then just giving your, 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 yourself the grace to be a trailblazer, which I, I think are just important things for all of us to take away. Until next time, I encourage you as always to continue to share your story. It's so important, not only for you, but for others to hear your story. And if you have any feedback or any comments about any of the podcasts, feel free to reach out to me. You can reach me at all of the social channels at Matt E story. Or you can go to my website, www.mattestory.com. 